Welcome to Supersized Science, where we feature research and discoveries enabled by advanced computing technology and expertise at the Texas Advanced Computing Center of the University of Texas at Austin. I'm Jorge Salazar, a science writer at TAC. Scientists are using TAC's Maverick 2 supercomputer and data from the game Ebb and Flow by Lumosity to train deep learning models that mimic the human behavior of task switching, which is shifting attention from one task to another. This basic research is important for helping scientists understand cognitive control, which encompasses the basic mental processes that allow one to focus on the task at hand, but also flexibly disengage from the task if the need arises. These abilities are taxed by the game Ebb and Flow that the researchers studied. The research may also inform the understanding of diseases in which patients exhibit deficits in cognitive control, such as bipolar disorder and schizophrenia. A study that developed new and more realistic models of task switching was published in Nature Human Behavior in January 2023. On the podcast to discuss the findings is Paul Jaffe, a postdoctoral fellow working with Professor Russell Poldrack in the Department of Psychology at Stanford University. Dr. Jaffe, welcome to the podcast. Sure, yeah. But what are the main results of this study that modeled response time of human cognitive tasks? You know, as cognitive scientists, neuroscientists, we do behavioral experiments. And then the data from those experiments, which usually takes the form of response times on each trial, uh, the choices participants make, uh, those can be really informative for understanding how the mind works. And so one way to kind of understand those data is to build models. Um, and the models allow us to make predictions and kind of generalize from those observations. And so in terms of the kind of tasks we were studying, the existing models, which have taught us a lot, have a few major limitations, which is, for one thing, they're often not very flexible. So they, they make kind of a lot of assumptions about how the data exists and how the mind works. Uh, so we wanted something that was more flexible, impose fewer assumptions, or they have some other limitations, like they can't be fitted to uh, data from participants. And so one of the main contributions we made was develop a, a new way of modeling these data that imposes fewer assumptions on how the brain goes about doing a particular task. Uh, so we used a neural network to fit the data and that allowed us to also model individual differences. So we could fit uh, one model for each person's data and then kind of look at how the models differed. So, you know, these models kind of, they have these neural networks and we can look inside this is kind of the brain of the model, so we can look inside the brains of the model and kind of understand how they're doing the tasks. And then we use these models to understand task switching. So, you know, in everyday, everyday life, we have to constantly switch between all these different tasks. Uh, our attention is constantly shifting. Uh, you know, we get a new email. Um, we're shifting from our tasks to look at the email. Then, you know, we see some interesting article, and so we go click on that article. Uh, then we decide to Google something related to the article. Anyway, we're constantly switching between all these different tasks. And that, every time we shift, there's a cost associated with that. Uh, it takes a while for our brain to kind of update and reconfigure for the new situation. So those are called switch costs. 
And those, those processes kind of give us insight into how our minds control these high-level cognitive tasks. And so cognitive scientists, they study this process uh, using more controlled tasks. So uh, using task switching tasks. And so in a typical task switching task, participant will be doing, will be switching back and forth between one or two different tasks. And what we typically observe is when the participant switches from one task to the other, uh, their responses are slower and less accurate. And so that kind of captures this phenomenon that we observe in real life, which is whenever we need to, you know, we switch away from what we're working on to do some other thing, make a cup of coffee. Uh, it takes us a while to kind of adjust when we come back to the original thing we were working on. Uh, at least, at least it does for me. That that's kind of the task switching paradigm, and the data we used were from uh, Lumosity, which is I don't know if you've heard of Lumosity. It's totally fine if you haven't. It's a brain training app. And one of the cool things about Lumosity is they have a ton of data. So people have played these tasks um, that are they're kind of uh, gamified versions of these laboratory cognitive tasks. So they make these really boring tasks kind of fun. And for our purposes, they just they have a ton of data. And so we're able to fit these models to that data set. Why the scientific interest? I think the broader kind of cognitive operations involved are, are what are typically called cognitive control. So that's how do we kind of um, configure our different mental resources to do these tasks. So, you know, if we're working on writing a paper, there are all these kind of high-level cognitive operations involved in doing that. Like um, we have to remember our previous knowledge. And then on the fly, deploy that knowledge. Basically, anytime you're doing some high-level cognitive task, you have to control your, your mental faculties. And so how do we actually do that? So everyday life, that's, that's what we're doing all the time. We're kind of, we have some particular goal in mind, requires particular sets of knowledge. Our brains need to control that some, somehow. So we need to, you know, as we're having this conversation, I need to deploy my previous knowledge, configure these mental resources. Scientists call this cognitive control. And that's, you know, clearly it's very important for how we go about our daily lives. It's also affected a lot of disease states, diseases like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, can be thought of kind of deficits of cognitive control. Uh, obviously, they're very complicated, but uh, one aspect of it is that we kind of lose our ability to control how our minds work to some extent. And so there's interest in these processes for just you know basic understanding of how, how our brains work and how we do all these complicated things in our lives. But also there is uh, an interest because we might be able to understand some of these disease conditions better. And so that's why and one of the reasons all these all these people are working on it. Could you talk a little bit about the experiment? We didn't have to do any new behavioral experiments. So uh, fortunately, all of the data already existed. 
So we were able to use this existing data sets to kind of develop our modeling framework and ask questions about it. The experiments we did were related. We used the models that we fitted to the data. So we did some kind of descriptive analyses of these models. Uh, so one thing we found when we kind of, you know, we looked inside the guts of these models to try and understand um, how they're doing the tasks. And one of the things we found is that the two tasks in this broader task switching task are, are represented in different regions of the model's latent space. So that's, that's kind of an abstract representation of the variables involved in this particular task. So it was almost like one part of the brain was doing there are two different parts of the model's brain doing each task. And they're in different regions. There are sort of two different brain regions doing each task. And it didn't have to be that way. So they could have been, they could have been, you know, just one brain region doing both things. One reason that was interesting is because it kind of explains why there's a switch cost, because it takes time for activity to go from one brain region to the other. And so that's kind of explains why there's a slowing when you switch from one task to the other. At least that our model suggested that that kind of explanation might be possible. And so that kind of explains how switch costs arise, but it doesn't really explain why they arise. Because, you know, we found a solution that explains the switch costs, but why does that solution exist? And so we found that one possible explanation is that by having two different, by kind of separating the task into these two different brain regions, that actually makes, it makes the model more robust in the sense that it's harder for noise to kind of disrupt the task in each of these brain regions. So by keeping things kind of separated, it allows the brain to do each task very well. So they're not getting interference from the other brain region. In other words, they're not getting, when you're doing one task, you're not getting confused by the signals from the other task. So the experiments we did suggested that that kind of solution might explain why there's the separation of these two brain regions that had been suggested, that kind of model had been suggested by uh, a paper by Muslick and Cohen, which we cite in the manuscript, if that's something you want to point to. But they were the ones that kind of came up with that general idea. Could you speak a little bit more to the model that, uh, that your lab uh, uh, created and, um, and talk about, well, actually, you've you mentioned the, the, the data already. I just wanted to make sure I covered that, where the data comes from. To fit this kind of model, it's a deep learning model. We needed two things, and we needed a few different things. One is we needed a lot of data. Fortunately, we got that from Lumosity. So the, these deep learning models generally require a lot of data, but fortunately, we were able to get that from Lumosity. We also needed kind of the algorithms. So uh, we we kind of adapted some machine learning algorithms that are called um, variational autoencoders to solve this problem. And what 
that kind of model is good at is it's good at learning what's called a generative model, which means it's able to generate the data that we observe. So it's kind of a a realistic, it captures something really important about a model of the brain, which is it can actually spit out the data. So it can actually kind of do the task. You can feed the model stimuli and the model will generate responses uh, just like a person does. So that's what's, that's really all that is meant by a generative model. And the third thing I mentioned we need uh, are computing resources. And so that's why what TAC was really essential for getting this to work is because they have, for this kind of model, we use GPUs, which are graphics processing units, which TAC has um, a lot of. And those are... GPUs are kind of specialized for fitting this class of model, deep learning models. And so those computing resources were really essential for us to do that work. How did these resources help in development of this model? The system we used was Maverick 2. So that system has a lot of graphics processing units, which are these GPUs. And so for, for fitting this kind of model, for really for any deep learning model nowadays, um, like all of these large language models you've probably seen like ChatGPT, all of these big deep learning models use really specialized hardware that's good at doing. So really what it's good at doing is multiplying matrices together, which is a lot of the uh, computation involved in fitting these deep learning models boils down to make multiplying matrices. And so GPUs are hardware that, you know, addition, originally they were doing all this heavy number crunching for uh, graphics, computer graphics. And then people started to realize they could be adapted to these deep learning problems and other computational problems. And so that's, so GPUs are really essential for, for fitting this kind of model. And TAC has a lot of them, and they're they're pretty good GPUs. And so we were able to fit a lot of these models pretty quickly using uh, the TAC resources. What's the most important thing you'd like people to know about using supercomputers to understand human behavior? The main thing is that to fit the complex models that are we think will be needed to explain the brain and explain behavior, you need really powerful computing systems particular GPUs. So I think the takeaway is that supercomputing resources like these are essential for developing models that can actually explain the brain and behavior um, at a high level of detail. You've been listening to Paul Jaffe of Stanford University. Supersized Science is part of the Texas Podcast Network, the conversations changing the world, brought to you by the University of Texas at Austin. The opinions expressed in this podcast represent the views of the host, not of the University of Texas at Austin. For the Texas Advanced Computing Center, I'm Jorge Salazar.